I'm going to be uh, reading from Isaiah 53 here eventually, but I'm not going to start out there. But you're welcome to turn there and um, you can be prepared to follow along when we get to that point. I'm not wanting to get deep here, but I'm going to begin with reading a statement that J.I. Packer has written on the subject of penal substitutionary atonement. And that word penal substitution has the idea of it's related to punishment. In other words, what happened on the cross, there was a punishment being poured out on the cross on, on, uh, on, uh, because of the guilt of sin. And he was being, um, he was substituting himself for us. So that's the idea. That's a simple explanation. Now I want you to listen to this statement and then we'll proceed from there. The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined. And so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. To affirm penal substitution is to say that believers are in debt to Christ specifically for this. And that this is the mainspring of all their joy, peace, and praise, both now and for eternity. But then there are those who contend that it is unjust for God to accept payment from an innocent party for a guilty party. And if this is true, then the cross of Christ really is nothing of any great significance. In fact, many have concluded this over the years, and it still exists today. And in fact, it's a pretty significant teaching in our day. They've concluded that God forgives with no reference to the cross. There is no need for the cross. They reason why would God demand a payment for sin, first of all. Why would he need to demand a payment for sin? And even if a payment is established, how can one man pay for another? An innocent man for a guilty. And so the truth of substitutionary atonement is rendered foolishness. And that really is what the Apostle Paul said, right? In in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we, when we talk about the cross, in fact, I, I thought about that when we were singing the old rugged cross. Um, the cross is emblematic. It's not just a cross. 
In fact, I think it's better to think of, nothing wrong with using the term cross, Paul does so, but it, it, it represents something. Um, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. But it really wasn't the old rugged cross, it was the one on the cross that is the issue. And so, when the chorus says something like, I don't have it in front of me, but we, we glory in the cross. Maybe it's, and Paul said that actually in Galatians chapter 6, so it's not an unbiblical phrase, but I think we need to be careful that it's not this, this wooden thing, emblem that we're glorying in. We're, we're glorying in the Christ of the cross, which is what the cross represents, and that song makes that clear. But we cannot define or evaluate the atoning work of Christ with natural minds. We can't start with our own experience and the experience of the judicial systems in which we have lived in our own country and in other places in the world. We can't begin there and then go look at the cross and God and try to make sense of what God has has done. And that's what some folks have tried to do. In fact, J.I. Packer said this. When man justifies the wicked. When man justifies the wicked, it is a miscarriage of justice, which God hates. But when God justifies the ungodly. It's a miracle of grace for us to adore. But there's a difference there. And so you cannot. There, there's profound mystery here, really, in the outworking of God's eternal redemptive plan. He's done what no man could do. He's done it in a way that no human system can duplicate. So you cannot find a human system that replicates what God has done, can do. God sending His only begotten Son joined with humanity to bear our sins in his body on the tree is not God conforming to any human system of justice. But it's God intervening to redeem us to himself. It's God doing something. What happened on the cross nearly... 2,000 years ago was the manifestation of perfect love as God did the only thing that could be done to justly deliver sinners from His own just wrath. Completely pardoning our guilt and adopting us unto Himself. There is no injustice with God. And I say that because there are those who look at the doctrine of substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement, and they do, and they, they bring that charge against God. Injustice. And so in an attempt to justify God before those who bring that charge, people have come up with theories of the atonement that come short of the biblical Record, But we must begin with that reality. There is no injustice with God. 
And whatever he has done, however he has chosen to work this plan of redemption out, it is according to who he is, that perfect love. And and either sinful humanity must suffer the eternal consequences of our sins, or God and God alone must provide a way of escape. Those are the only two options. And beloved, that's the glory of the cross. That's what we remember as we partake of these elements together today. Jesus Christ did what he did. For, F-O-R, for us. Distinct from us. And yet, bearing us. Our sins. Our guilt. In other words, his death was not an abstract death of an innocent, just Man. He, the just one, was dying for, F-O-R, for. And if you could see that Greek word, you would see in behalf of, in the, even in the stead of, is the biblical concept. Substitution. For the unjust. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so He was dying in our place in such a way that Scripture identifies us as with Him. You know the language I mean, I don't know how many times the Scriptures repeat this, but in Christ and with Christ, in Him and with Him, there is this union that exists. And there's mystery there. But it's true. In other words, He was dying in one sense alone, in another sense, He wasn't alone because our sin and our guilt was on Him, you see. He was dying... Was he dying as a just man or an unjust man? Was he dying as a righteous man or a sinner? Can you see the the tension there? Absolutely righteous. Absolutely just. And yet, what was on him? What was in him? What was with him? Our sin. Our sin. Guilt. Listen to the language, the substitution language of Isaiah 53 and verses 4 through 12. I want you to, I, I, I suppose we could say all of Scripture's holy ground because it is the holy word of God. We call it that and it is holy, holy Scripture. There's something about these words here that are. It's amazing that we were written, what, 800 years before Christ came into the world? Phenomenal. And yet it's as if it is New Testament gospel language, because it is. It's expressing what happened before it happened. Because after all, isn't Jesus the Lamb? 
as a lamb slain even before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. Right? It wasn't an afterthought. Surely, verse 4, let's begin in verse 4. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Let's not hurry through it. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. This is what was going on on the cross in Christ. All we Like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Was he alone on the cross in his own righteousness and justice, or was there something laid on him there? Again, there's mystery here. But you see, he was bearing something in a very personal way. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. Recently, we observed that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Brother Charles, we were talking about this right here. That's the same word right there. That's the very same word that's translated pleasure. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isn't that amazing? It pleased him. It was his pleasure to bruise him. He was bearing our iniquity, bearing our wickedness, our sin, our guilt. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul, when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There, there's the ultimate purpose. The pleasure of the Lord prospering in his hand. 
Continue. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, this is what we remember tonight, or this afternoon. My sins. Not sin generically considered. Sometimes we think that way. The death of Christ was for sin and for sins. And we, and we think of it in a, in sort of a, just sort of an abstract way. Jesus' death was not an abstract death for abstract sins. It was, he was bearing something specific. My sins, not just the concept of sin, but my grief, my sorrow, my judgment, my sins, and yours. They were being borne by Him. And our relation to God depends upon our union with Him. And that's what we ought to be thinking about tonight as we eat this bread and drink this cup. We're in union with Him. As we remember our Lord Jesus Christ today, we need to enter by faith into what He has accomplished for you, for me. So why are you pardoned? Why are you pardoned by God? Because He bore your sins in His body on the tree. Not generically, but yours. How can God be just and justify you? How can God declare you righteous when you're not? And be just in doing so? Because He set forth His Son To be the propitiation for your sins. By His stripes, we're healed. By His blood, we're cleansed. By His life, we're justified. How can you, struggling saint, those of you who are struggling with guilt, How can you have peace and joy in the midst of your present imperfection? Has any of your imperfection come to your mind over this last week? Maybe even today? How can you have peace? How can you not just have peace? Experience it. How can you experience it? How can you experience joy? It's because you have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is ever interceding for you. You say, well, wasn't that finished at the cross? It's on the basis of that that he ever intercedes. Knowing that, as you take of this bread and take of this cup tonight, in faith, the Holy Spirit with us, in us, uniting us in that faith to the reality of what He has accomplished should silence the indictments that might come to your mind and should stir up a sense of rest, a sense of peace, a sense of joy. And we're doing this together as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ together. We, we need to enter with one another. I, 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 you know, I've said this numerous times to you. This is not an isolated individual activity. And so we're thinking, as, as I am remembering all the things we have said in my union with Christ, guess what? Every single believer who is partaking with me is also united. And, and we're united together. This is... This is one of the significant realities and beauties of the Lord's Supper in a church is that we're expressing that union that we have together with Him in His death and resurrection. One body in Christ. And so, brother and sister in Christ, what is true of you or what is true of me? It's true of you. It's true of me. Together. We're in this together. We're partaking together in remembrance of Him in whom we're bound together now and for eternity. What a blessing. What an encouragement that ought to be for you as you've come together in the name of Christ to remember Him tonight. May our fellowship in His body and in His blood tonight encourage us right now Right now, tonight, today, right now, encourage us as we join together to remember Him as we receive these elements.